All right. Hello, and welcome to yet another value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. And with me today, I'm excited to have two guests. We've got Sleepwell Capital, who we'll be calling Sleep. And then we've got Enlightened Capital, who we'll be calling Enlightened. And they're going to stay anonymous, but that's okay, because I really respect them both. Sleep, Enlightened, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great. Uh, hey, thanks for coming on. Let me start this podcast the way I do every podcast. First, uh, a quick disclaimer to remind everyone who's listening that nothing on this podcast is investing advice. And then second, a pitch with a pitch for the two of you, my guests. Uh, you know, it's a little different having two guests on instead of one at the same time. But both of you run some of my favorite blogs. You, you do great fundamental work on companies. Obviously, sleep is the ma- is the master of uh of the music industry. I've learned so much from here, but I've been longtime followers of both your blogs, love them both, required reading for me. So really excited to figure out a way to have you both on the pod. And that out the way, let's turn to the company we're going to talk about. The the company's Ally Financial. The ticker is A-L-L-Y, Ally. And Sleep, Enlighten, whoever wants to start, what is Ally and why are we so excited about it today? Yeah, so I can kick it off. Um, and I think it's, it's important to understand that the history of this company as, as well in the context of you know kind of where it came from and and where we think it's it's going so ally financial is uh, the largest online bank in the in the US um, it has uh, 130 billion dollars in, in in deposits uh, but probably it's it's historically more known for its auto lending business um, so it actually rebranded uh, around 10 years ago. This used to be uh, the GMAC business. So it was the, the GM auto lending business. Yep. We know what happened to, to General Motors in the, in the financial crisis. So uh, basically what, uh, what took place during that time, uh, given the, the distress in the, in the auto industry and the, and the OEMs was that the, the captive financing arms uh, Kind of got separated from the from the parent companies. In the case of of GMAC, uh, it got, you know, it turned into a bank holding company in in large part so they could uh, receive TARP funds. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, w- something that that kind of got them into into big trouble was that they sort of diversified, quote unquote, away from auto lending and started. Getting big into into mortgage lending, uh, I think they were actually one of the biggest mortgage lenders back in back in the two thousands. Yep. Uh, so uh, Rescap, which was part of of, of GMAC, was really what um, you know what what bled the most uh, the most money during during that time in this in this part of the of the business. So it received multiple you know uh, TARP uh, injections, and uh, after you know a couple of years of trying to solve their their legacy their legacy business you know they were able to finally sort of lay off that uh, that mortgage portfolio through through a bankruptcy and, and a couple of settlements and finally in, in they also they also did a, a rebranding and, and turned into into ally bank um, because they also received the the Chrysler uh, the Chrysler loan book and in 2015 it it, it IPO um, during the during this time as they as they went through the rebranding, uh, they also established uh, an online an online bank uh, that has grown, you know, at incredible rates. Uh, I would say um, the, the past five to ten years have been around twenty percent uh, Kagar in in deposit growth, and you know they've been focusing on on this uh, on this newer part of the business 
for the for the past uh, five years. Um, Enlightened. I don't know if you want to add some some to that. Sure. Yeah. No, that was a good overview. But yeah, really. Um, you know, over the last ten years, have really grown. Um, their online bank. They're now the largest online only bank in the U.S. So they don't have a branch network, um, which is a really interesting aspect of the company, um, leading to a lower cost structure. Um, and they're also, you know, as Lee mentioned, uh, you know, the largest, one of the largest auto lenders in the country as well. Uh, so those are a couple of unique aspects. Um, when they IPO, the government owned a good portion of the company, which, you know, has since been repaid. Um, so that's, yeah, that's kind of a nice uh, overview of the company. Perfect. And I, I'm going to dive into a bunch of different parts of that in a second, but in Leiden, why don't you start? Cause I believe you had a post on your blog recently about Ally, if I'm remembering correctly, it's tough because we're in COVID and I can't remember who wrote <laughs> what, but uh, yeah, why don't you just start, you know, Y'all have laid out the basis of what the company is, but you're both attracted to the company because you think it's undervalued. You think that there's a, you know, you can make a lot of money on this thing. So why don't you just lay out the simple kind of why is this undervalued both case here? Sure, definitely. So a couple of key aspects. One, uh, the company has substantially brought down its funding cost over time. Uh, when the company IPO'd, they were still in the process of building their online bank. Um, so most of their funding was really secured, unsecured debt. Um, and over the past, you know, since they IPO'd, they brought that down to about 10%. And now 90% of their funding is deposit funding. So they've really reduced uh, the cost of funds over time. It's now down to about 1%. Um, and it's been as high as, I think, 5% or so when they uh, in 2010. It really brought down their cost of funding. Um, and as a result, they've seen pretty strong improvement in margins and their net interest margin over time. They're actually this year, they're up about 100 basis points over last year. So they're in the 3.536 area, their net interest margin. Uh, and that compares to other large US banks that are in the high ones area, uh, low twos. So they have significant margin um, you know, differential between them and other large US banks, money center banks, large regionals. Um, they also have the lower cost structure as a result of it being online only. They have a much lower efficiency ratio. Um, which allows them to then pay a higher rate on deposits. So one of the key reasons that they've been able to grow their deposits at such a high rate over time is that they're paying much higher deposit rates than a, a Bank of America, a JP Morgan, a Wells, uh, typically about you know 50 basis points higher. And really all that cost savings is a result of having no, no bank branches. Um, so they've attracted a ton of deposits. Um, and it's also driven by you know, the overall model, better customer service, um, they've continually won awards, being the top online bank, you know, over the past five plus years. Um, but as a result, you know, they've seen really, really strong uh, deposit growth, which has then led um, into the lower funding costs. So that's one of the key key drivers here. One of the key advantages for the company: just stronger margins, lower cost structure, um, stronger growth there. Um, and then another interesting aspect is really the last few years, the company has started diversifying away a little bit from auto uh, in terms of the asset side of the balance sheet. So their auto business, uh, including loans and insurance, is still about 90% of earnings. But but over time, you know, I see that um, declining. They've added a number of capabilities. They've added mortgages again. And this time it's not subprime. This time it's, you know, much higher quality mortgages. Uh, the average FICO score is like 780 their mortgage book. Um, they've added uh, personal loans. Um, they've added uh, corporate loan lending. 
Um, and just recently in the third quarter earnings, they announced the acquisition of a credit card company, Fairscore Financial. So that really rounds out um, their product offering for consumers. So now you can get checking and savings account, credit card, personal loans, mortgage. Um, you can also trade and invest through Ally as well. So a lot of those uh, additional product offerings have been added through uh, acquisitions in the last three to five years. Perfect. So that's great. And you know what I love? I love that I said, lay out the bull case for me. And you didn't mention valuation once. You just talked <laughs> about you know their advantage for deposits and everything. So I'll mention valuation for you. You know, the, the stock trades at 1.2 times, 1.1 times book, some, somewhere around there. And the way I've always looked at banks is, all right, if, you, if you're a normal bank with no competitive advantage or, or anything, you probably deserve to trade for about book. You'll probably make about your return on capital, probably around 8% ROE. I don't know. So you trade around book. So at 1.2 times book, you would think this is a company that's earning you know, a little bit above their cost of capital. And I'm just looking at the slides, you know, this is a company that right now their return on equity is over 20%, probably comes down a little bit over the long term, but you know, they've consistently done mid-teens, high teens, 20% ROE. If that's the case, this is a company that should trade for you and I could argue two times book, three times book, gonna depend a little bit on is it 15 or 20%? How big's the growth prospect, right? So that's the bull, that's the valuation case. I want to dive into some of the things you said there, right? Because ROE is going to be a function of two things. How cheap your deposits are, which lowers your interest costs, and how good your loan book is, which increases your earnings. So let, sleep, I guess, enlightened started, but on the deposit side, you know, yeah. deposits are a commodity to me. And he mentioned they pay less for the deposits because of the online model. And I kind of looked at it as, okay, I get that. But you know, the bank, the the traditional banks, the Wells Fargo's, the JP Morgan's, they've got the lowest cost of deposits because they're around every corner and people go put their deposits at them. Ally is online. I don't understand why they can pay higher rates in the banks, but lower than all the other online players, because there's tons of online players, you know, SoFi, everyone's trying to get there. Why can Ally sustainably pay more than JP Morgan, but less than all the other guys? And that's kind of where their edge is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think when it comes to deposits, uh, rate is definitely a, a very important you know, aspect of, of deciding who you're going to, to bank with, but it's not necessarily the only one. And one thing that Ally has done really well is is building, um, you know, a, a customer experience that's very seamless, easy to use, uh, low fees. So they, you know, they they've never had, for example, ATM fees. Um, they they took they took away overdraft fees. If you want to talk to a to a person on the on the phone, it'll probably take you you know three minutes uh, to 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 wait for that representative to to answer. So they've uh, I think they've built uh, a product that has tailored to to millennials really well. The, the majority of their customers are are millennials, um, and these kind of customers, uh, you know, really appreciate uh, kind of having that that online experience that they're that they're looking for. So, even if Ally is not really being, you know, the kind of the top the, the, the top payer, uh, it's you know looking at their at their retention numbers at at ninety six percent on an annual basis compared to industry average of around eighty five percent. Uh, really speaks to kind of the customer engagement and and uh, you know just th these people are happy banking banking with Ally because they're really um, you know helping them out with with all their their financial needs. Um, I, so I don't I, yeah go ahead. 
Yeah, I, I just want to drill on that because as a, a stupid generalist, right, who yeah. started looking at Ally a day and a half ago and actually is pretty interested in everything he's seen. But, you know, everything you just said makes sense for the stickiness, right? You sleep yeah, depo- yeah. makes a deposit there. He loves it. Great customer service. And then Andrew comes along and says, hey, sleep, Ally's paying you 1%. Why don't you switch over to me and I'll pay you 1.1%? And you say, no, 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 no. I love it at Ally. But for attracting new money, because Ally has attracted a lot of new money, it yeah, seems like if Enlightened's looking for a new place to park money, my 1.1% offer versus your 1% offer, like he doesn't really know how great the customer service is there. You know, this is the old hot money deposit thing, right? There's lots of banks who would grow on hot deposits, but then somebody come along and beat them by 10 basis points and they lost them all. So how, how can I, how has LA been growing while offering less than kind of other online players? Well, I think part of it is is word of mouth, and they've also been really effective on on their marketing campaigns. Um, it, 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 it's interesting because uh, I was actually listening to to a podcast of their chief marketing officer, and I mean, I would have never thought I'd end up kind of, you know, doing research on the marketing department of a of a bank. But turns out this is a very big part of this of this company and kind of the uh, of the culture, and uh, they've done you know all these different initiatives that that have really Helped uh, the awareness of the brand across uh, across this part of the of the millennial market, that seems to have been working really well. I mean, if we you know if we go back ten years, you can see the the, the deposit growth has been pretty pretty consistent. Um, as we were talking about, it's been close to twenty percent um, since uh, since then. So, I think what they're doing is is working, and and um, you know through that combination of of their effective marketing campaigns and. And uh, and kind of the word of mouth and and happy customers that that love banking with them, I think has has helped them, uh, you know, to maintain that growth. I don't know if you have anything to add there, uh, enlightened. Yeah, no, I think that's all uh, spot on. Um, you know, they they continually win awards the best online bank. So I think they're just at this point they're they're established and they're known um, for all their capabilities. And I think additionally, with all the additional products that they're starting to offer that they have been offering in the last few years, um, I think that helps achieve, uh, you know, stickier customer relationships and also helps them attract new customers, you know, especially now with the credit card offering as well. So I think all of that kind of works together. Perfect. And I I should just note, I'm such a bad podcast host, but I'm just going to reinforce for listeners, Sleep and Enlighten both write blogs. They'll be linked to the blogs and the show notes. You guys should definitely check them out, subscribe. I'll include Enlighten's, I think it was February as I was looking up, his write-up on Ally. So I'll include that. Everyone go check that out. I feel like a bad podcast host for not hammering that home, but (laughs) let's continue and ignore my oversight. Uh, Enlighten. So the second part, I think we did a credible job just now talking about how they attract deposits, how, how they're sticking us there. Let's turn to the other side, right? So you've got deposits, you've got a low cost of funding thanks to that. You've got to make money on the loans, right? And they do have strategic relationships with GM and Chrysler, which are really beneficial. And we'll probably talk more about the strategic relationships. But I was struck by a quote, which I included in my notes when I was preparing for this. And they said, it was a quote around, hey, we we have a very high strategic most around our, around our business because you need very sophisticated underwriting and service capabilities. And that struck me because... Again, when I look at banking and lending, I think it's the ultimate commodity play. Borrowing a dollar from you versus me, depositing it, it's kind of the same. You go with whoever gives you the best rate, right? And here, auto lending, I get you and I probably can't lend autos, but it seems like there's a thousand people who could lend auto lend against autos pretty well. So why the results have been great. Why do they have a strategic mode around lending? Like what, what data advantage do they really have against a JP Morgan lending or, you know, any of the other hundred thousand people who can give an auto loan. 
Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think there's a couple things that differentiate them. Um, I think one is the fact that you know they're viewing their dealerships as their customer, really. So their their work is to s- service the dealership. So it's not only you know lending money to uh, the consumer, but it's also dealership floor plan loans. So not you know not every auto lender is going to offer loans to the dealers themselves. Can, can you just describe uh, what a dealership floor plan loan is for the listeners? Sure. So, you know, the the dealerships need substantial inventory to attract customers. And so Ally is lending money to the dealerships to help them uh, maintain, you know, substantial amount of inventory, which has actually been a real headwind over the last 12, 18 months due to COVID. You know, inventory is way down. (laughs) There's no inventory. Right. There's no inventory. There's nothing to lend to. So they're, they're commercial uh, loans are down almost 50% in the last year, but nevertheless, that is a key capability that they have that many of their peers don't. Um, another key differentiator, which people I think don't realize when when they think about Ally, is Ally actually is a big insurance business. It's not auto insurance like a, a Progressive or Allstate, yep. but it's it's warranty insurance is a big one. You know, um, insurance for for the consumer, but also insurance for dealerships to insure their inventory, as well as just sort of general property casualty insurance. So they have really sticky relationships with these dealerships because they can bundle all these products. And something like 80% of their dealerships also have insurance as well as um, you know auto lending. Can I just zoom in a little harder? Because you did a great job explaining it, but I want to make... I, the one part I think that was missing was what is the moat around that, right? Like they've got the relationships and everything for sure. But again, on dealer floor plan, it, it doesn't seem like it should be that hard. Like you're lending against, I'm going to pick a number out, a hundred cars. And, you know, if I lend to a hundred cars to enlightened and I lend a hundred cars to sleep well, like they're all coming from the, they're all coming from the same GM it's auto dealerships. Like it just doesn't seem like it should be that hard to break into the industry. So is there any real like strategic mode I'm missing or is the relationship is it similar to a lot of small businesses where the relationship is you've got to go knock on some doors and it takes a long time to displace that? So I, so that second part is, is definitely a big part of it. They have about 20,000 dealership relationships. So these are some of these are many of these are, are really mom and pop small dealers that don't have large networks. And they're the biggest too, right? Right. And and, and they are the biggest. So that is a big advantage. Um, just the scale, the number of products they can offer. And then the insurance side too is something that a lot of their peers are not going to offer. And they've got. And I would say, Andrew. Also, on the auto lending is. It may not be that intuitive, but it's it's not the same as as lending to to a house where you're basically you know when when it comes to to pricing and and the the value of of that house you're just looking at comparables right the 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 pricing on autos is not as transparent because also remember they have a big used car lending business yep. so because there's such a big national player. Uh, they have, you know, a ton of data that they that that they've for the past 100 years actually because they've been around for so for so long um, to kind of track the performance of all of all these different loans for all these different models. Um, if you think, you know, there's probably thousands of different car models out there of different vintages, etc., and they can they can probably price a lot more appropriately uh, than someone who's just coming in and and you know and and started lending out. Uh, without having access to this uh, to this data and the, and the track record that they that they have, and I think also what what they've shown is they've been very flexible in terms of of where they're playing, depending on on where the market is. So, for example, the used market right now is super strong, so they've shifted a lot a lot of their underwriting capabilities to that part of the 
of the market. Five years ago, they used to lend more on on the super prime, uh, but then kind of the uh, you know the the actual near prime or or just above prime became more attractive because there was less competition and they started migrating the book towards that. So they've shown that that they can adapt pretty quickly to these to these market changes and their loan book actually turns around pretty quickly in around three or four years. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Let me just one more thing on the loan. So they've got the relationships with strategic relationship with GM and Chrysler. I believe the Chrysler relationship might be going away at some point. I think Chrysler's taken the first steps to kind of having their own internal capabilities. But what does the strategic relationship with GM mean? Like if you are a GM dealer, could you work with someone other than Ally? Or are you kind of forced to work with Ally if you want floor plan financing insurance, all that type of stuff? I, yeah, so let's not all talk about it. I can take it. So actually, the, the just to be clear, the, the GM relationship used to be exclusive, but uh, that that uh, that agreement basically terminated uh, a, a, a number of years ago, actually. Uh, so one thing that I think they've been able to, to show and, and it speaks to their track record is that they were able to diversify away from those lost volumes uh, via new growth initiatives and, and kind of new dealerships. So they still they still lend uh, a big you know a big part to to, to GM uh, to GM automobiles, but it's not exclusive anymore. And so it's just like a strategic partnership now, because I know they they highlight the partnership. It's well, just they're they're still of... they're still a big yeah. So they still have the relationship with with a lot of these of these deal, dealers, um, but they're they're just not the exclusive uh, financing arm to these to these dealers uh, anymore. These dealers can can you know end up choosing someone else. In many cases, it's it's GM uh, themselves that that end up that end up taking 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 the loan. Um, but I would. The other thing I'll, I'll say is that they're not necessarily competing in the in in the same uh, parts of the market and, and and FICO scores that that some of these captives uh, focus on. Um, historically, the captives have been very focused on leasing, for example, um, and 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 sometimes look at at at, um, at different credit scores as well. So I think Ally is very well aware of of what the captives are, what what these financing arms of the big OEMs are doing, and they they've been able to adjust. Um, uh, pretty well over time, and you're correct that Chrysler is gonna is gonna set up their own uh, their own captive as well, and and Allies is well aware of that. And and Leiden, I'll let you add on there, but I will just say to me that again, I, I've only looked at the company for a day, but that makes me a little more bullish, right? Because I had thought that it was an exclusive partnership, so there was the possibility they were over earning a little bit because it's exclusive. But the fact that they're actually out there competing with an internal GM arm, and you know you, me, and whoever else wants to throw money around, and they're still earning these returns and growing and doing well, that's a much different story than if it was a completely exclusive and they might be over-earning. But did you want to add anything to what Sleep just said? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, so yeah, GM also has GM Financial. That's the other uh, entity that that um, you know it, it issues loans. But um, yeah, just in terms of their origination mix, in 2014, when they IPO, they were about 80% GM Chrysler, and now they're 50% GM Chrysler. Uh, and the other 50% they consider their growth initiatives, which is you know uh, through Carvana, CarMax, they do a lot of lending through some of these online players. So and, and, and none of those are exclusive. Those are also right. yeah right. Yeah. But so they've they've you know consciously diversified away from yeah. GM Chrysler. And there's other brands as well, like Mitsubishi and yeah whatever. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so I think we've done a nice job of 
explaining, hey, this is a company, you know, the ROE is 15, 20% or something. And we the ROE is going to be a function of your cost of capital. So that's mainly deposits on one side and how good you are at lending. So that everything. And I think we've done a good job of talking about both of those sides. So the obvious next question would be, okay, guys, great. You've just described why they've got an advantage that a cost of deposit got an advantage on the lending side. This is a company that's trading for 1.1 or 1.2 times book. So clearly the market is looking at this company and saying, we don't think returns are sustainable, right? You can barely earn above your costs of capital. So I know both of you are bulls, so you think the market's wrong, but what is the market seeing? What is the market pricing in here that you know returns are going to come down over time? I mean, I guess I, I can start. I think a couple of things. I think historically, this company was pre, pre-COVID was kind of earning 10 to 12% ROEs and, and that had come up since the IPO. So I think historically, that's kind of where the, the company was. Um, so I think it's a little bit of a show me story. And I think over the last year, management is really guided to much higher ROEs than the company has generated historically. And I think based on all the things we've talked about, lower funding costs, new products, et cetera. You know, I, I think, I, I personally believe the company will get there, but I think it's still kind of a show me story because 2021's results have been positively impacted by reserve releases from last year. So that's, you know, non-recurring. Um, there's been some positive impacts on the used car side from higher used car prices. So that's also, you know, not recurring. But I think if you look at management's guidance, they, they're they're talking about 15, 16% returns on on equity um, in a more normalized environment. So they're already taking that into consideration that, you know, used car prices are really high. They're going to come down as uh, inventories normalize. Um, So, but again, I think it's kind of a show me story because that's a much higher level of earnings than the company has had historically pre-COVID. And Sleep, I'm going to let you dive in, but that was exactly what I was thinking, right? This is a company that Returns have gone up a lot thanks to COVID and just all the funkiness with that. And what it seems to me with the stock at 1.2 or one about 1.2 is the market is discounting, hey, this is a great bump, but you're going to go back to 10% over time. And what the two of you are kind of betting on is we don't think it's going back to 10%. Maybe it's probably not staying at 20 or 25, but we think it's going to 15, 16, 17. And at 15, 16, 17, this is a 2X plus business. Sleep, did you want to add anything there? Yeah, I mean, I'll just echo a couple of, of things that enlightened touched on. You know, management has been pretty clear in the fact that they're underwriting based off a normalized environment where used car prices decline, right? So they're definitely over earning right now, and management knows that, and and, and we know that. Um, but once things you know return to to a normal environment, um, it's not like things are going to come crashing down, right? The and I think this is a kind of a nuance in. in in terms of of really understanding the impact that used car pricing has on their on their loan book, right? Uh, the two places where it really hits them is uh, on the on the on the loan side. It's only when a consumer defaults, right? So even if you have car prices crush, you know, coming down whatever 50 percent, um, but you have a low default environment, uh, it's it's not going to be that bad for them because you know they'll just they'll just repossess the vehicle and recover less than they than they would uh, otherwise if, if if used car pricing was was a bit stronger and the other part is on the on the leasing side of the business which is is not that big a part of the of the business and again i think they're they've been pretty clear on the fact that they are underwriting for a normalized environment so they are seeing a short term benefit right now but in in a 
kind of a 20 late 2022 23 scenario where, when things uh become become more more traditional in terms of of, of the this you know the, the curve of, of used car pricing um that i i have all the reasons to believe that management is going to hit their their return targets and they've been pretty clear in in terms of how they can get there Perfect. I want to move into, this is an overcapitalized company. I want to move into the M&A. They're doing the share buybacks and everything, but I, I want to pause here and talk. We've talked about the cost of deposits, return of equity, the loan, but is there anything on kind of this valuation, funding, cost of capital side that you guys think we should have talked about a little bit more? No, I think we, I think we hit all the key points. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Just wanted to make sure. So let's go to the next point. You know, One of the great things about going from 10% ROE to 20% ROE is suddenly you're gushing cash flow, right? These guys are way overcapitalized now. They've been pretty clear about that. And they're doing something with that overcapitalization. They're doing some acquisitions. They're doing some pretty nice share buybacks and everything. I think that's great. And I just want to talk about you know, the acquisitions are strategic. They seem really interesting to me. The share buybacks at 1.2 times book are really interesting to me. But uh, let's talk about uh, what they're doing, how they're kind of growing intrinsic value through capital allocation. So, uh, and Latin, why don't we start with you and then we can switch it over to sleep. Sure. So yeah, on the repurchase side, so because they're, you know, bank holding company in the US, they're regulated by the Fed. So they have to basically get Fed permission in terms of dividends and buybacks. So last year, unfortunately, during COVID, they, they had to pause share repurchases. Um, so, so to your point, they, they began the year super overcapitalized, you know, well above their targets, well above Fed requirements. Um, and they got Fed approval for two, uh, 2 billion of share repurchases this year, and they're, they're well on, on track for that. So they're going to repurchase 2 billion this year, um, you know, which is substantial relative to the size of the company. Yeah, I'm pulling up the market cap right now because I couldn't remember it off the top of my head. The market cap here is uh, it's like 16 what? billion. Right? 16 billion. So we're yeah. talking about over 10% of the capital. I mean, that is yeah. a big boy share Massive. buyback. Yeah, and and they have a long history of repurchasing shares. They've, um, I think, repurchased over 25% of shares in the last. Yeah, five, since 2016 yeah. or something. And I like oh, just to add on to that really, really quickly. I like how they've framed it in the past too because you you can tell that management understands the math. Of of these buybacks, when we know very clearly that many times the best management, a lot of good management teams don't don't even think about buybacks that way. But I, but they've they've explained how buybacks are kind of a really uh, you know high ROE investment on on themselves, right? So I've I've always been attracted to to how they think about that. Um, it, it, share buyback share buybacks at consistent share buybacks at reasonable to unreasonable prices, and unreasonable I mean very cheap prices are. They're just catnip to me. Every time I look at my portfolio and I see something that doesn't have an ongoing share buyback, I'm like, why do I own this thing? And maybe that's a fault of mine, but I really love having companies that share buyback. The other way they're taking advantage of their overcapitalization is they're doing some M&A. They recently announced a deal. You know, it wasn't huge in the grand scheme of things, but I think it was very strategic, very creative. I'm interested in that deal both on its own merits and because it kind of speaks to some deals they could do in the future that could be strategic and continue kind of expanding that deep strategic moat they talked about. So Sleep, do you want to talk about their most recent deal and how they kind of look at M&A going forward? Sure. And and just to, so, because I, I don't think we've we've actually talked a lot about this, but in terms of the their new growth initiatives, if, if you think about their deposit product having been, yeah. you know, they've been working on that for, for the past 10 years. Uh, they've slowly been adding 
uh, complementary products uh, to to that, right? So, we, and 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 Lighten mentioned this, but but you have the kind of mortgages, personal lending. There's also an investing platform, and if you if you look at kind of that full banking spectrum of of offerings, the one missing piece was was credit cards. So uh, I think this was uh, pretty much expected, and uh, so they they did announce that this recent acquisition in the in the last earnings called. Uh, uh, Fair Square Financial. Yep. Um, as you as you said, it's it's not really uh, that big of a of, of an acquisition, but I think it makes sense in the in in the sense that it's going to give them a platform uh, to grow out of, and the, and that's what they've done with with these uh, with these these other ones. If you look at at the personal lending side, they also started out with an acquisition. If you look at investing, they bought Trade King uh, a couple of years ago, so it's they're executing on that exact same strategy of of you know buy, buying a, a quality a quality asset that has a good a good track record at a good at a good price and sort of building on top of that and a lot of it will come down to you know kind of cross selling the product to their existing uh deposit customers yeah and Len, did you want to add anything there yeah really the only thing to to add is they've done a really good job growing all of these you know additional products and and they're all relatively small from an earnings perspective right now, but I think over time, that'll be a really nice uh, diversifier. And now multi-product customers are up to like nine, 10%. And that's from zero in 2016. So they've done a pretty good job um, growing all these product lines. This might be me putting too much of rose-colored glasses on, but uh, it's an online bank, so it makes sense. But I was impressed by when reading through it, how similar it is to a lot of like the I guess the neobank startups and stuff where they talk about, hey, we started with this one product, mainly loans. Then we went to deposits. Nobody had more than one product with us for the most part. But now we've got this massive deposit bank base. We've got a, a relationships with millions and millions of consumers. And as Sleep was talking to earlier, our NPS is really high. We're the best online bank. And we've got all these gaps to fill and they've just slowly filled them. Like it's it's a little surprising to me that they chose to fill investing before they did credit cards because credit cards are just so bread and butter with uh with a deposit base but you know it, it just seems like a neobank strategy and it, it all makes total sense to me yeah and it's interesting because they've they, they they've come to kind of considered themselves the original fintech because you know they started an online bank in, in 2009 and i mean i can't think of anyone else that that would have said in 2009 oh let's start a bank right like that's probably the <laughs> the worst the worst time if you if you think but now that you look back it made a lot of sense the way that they did it right so one of you said it i can't remember who i'm sorry but uh you said this was you know they already had investing they've got the auto loans they've they now they have credit cards i think you said this was the kind of the last missing piece to their offering the whole suite yeah. of financial it's products kind of um, the obvious piece right like you could you could add more products to this but of the Do traditional have crypto? Banking i don't see any crypto yeah. offering on the website yet <laughs> exactly right yeah. and like do you agree with that or do you think there's any kind of maybe not so obvious but per, you know strategic things that they can bolt on or add on here i think on the consumer side they have a really nice product portfolio i think they'll you know just continue to to grow and build these out i think on the investing side you know their their asset base, their AUM is pretty small relative to a lot of the the really scaled players. So you know, right. I'd like to see them kind of scale that up over time. But but yeah, I think from a portfolio perspective, they're you know really nice uh, product mix. Okay, let me a little bit of pushback here. So I think my my first and biggest pushback would just be all right. 
everything you're saying. And I think everyone can tell when I listen to this, I think this is a great pitch. I think it's really interesting. I passed over it for a while for reasons we'll discuss in a second, but I think the biggest pushback would be, okay, that's great. It, it's cheap. They've got a great strategy. They've got a great mode. It's under earning. They're returning capital. Why don't insiders agree, right? Because Ally's been standalone for a long time. Insider ownership here is pretty poor. Uh, I I can't remember off the top of my head, but you know the way I generally look at it is I look at the CEO's pay versus how much stock he owns. Can't remember what exactly it is, but it is not a great ratio here. Uh, insiders, I, I posted this, uh, the, the last chart in my kind of tweet thing, I posted it. We haven't seen a single insider buy. I think there might've been one or two at the depths of 20, uh, March, 2020. But you know this year, it's just tons of insider sales, not one or two. It's just insider sales every month constantly. And, you know, when I look at that, I look at no insider ownership, constant insider selling. I look at that versus a story where I say really reasonable valuation, maybe unreasonable on the cheap side, returning capital. They seem to get it on capital allocation. I say, well, they seem to get it, but they don't seem to be putting their own money here. Like, what is the divergence here? Why, why are the insiders not kind of really taking advantage of these prices? Yeah, so I think that's definitely a, a good point and, and very valid pushback. When it when it comes to kind of judging judging management for for me personally, you know, insider ownership is is obviously a big a big part of it. But you know, I I'm not necessarily gonna discredit them too much for that because I you know I kind of take a step back as as well and, and try to look at their track record and and how they're incentivized uh, in terms of of you know like their long term. Uh, their long-term incentives, right? So, in the case of of the of, of Ally and their and and their executive officers, uh, their long-term pay is is based off uh, our ROTCE and and tangible book value per share growth, which kind of explains why they're aggressive on the on the buybacks as well. So, from that side, I think um, you know shareholders are are pretty well aligned uh, with uh, with with the management team. I agree that the board doesn't have uh, as much shares as, as as I would like them, and I think the CEO has, uh, you know, if you include like the RSUs and PSUs, etc., has around forty to fifty million. Like, if you ask me, yeah, I'd like, I would like him to have more, but I'm not gonna, you know, I'm, I wouldn't necessarily like discredit him or, or penalize him because he doesn't own enough in, enough shares. I actually like the CFO a lot as well, but she only became CFO, uh, I think it was two or three years ago. So I also wouldn't expect her to have a ton of shares at, at this point, um, but that's kind of that's kind of how I how I think about it. I, I agree. Like I would like them to have more, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna penalize them for that in, in my in my so mind. Can I, can I just do one more pushback there? So you said, yeah. hey, they are the CEO. I look at how they're paid, and they're paid on return on tangible capital employed, I believe it is, and tangible yeah. value, which which is great because ultimately. How investors are going to make money is is tangible book value growing and return on uh, capital going up, right? Right. But I do worry, you know, it is not that the same as them getting paid on total shareholder return, which there's issues with that too. But when you say we're going to get paid on tangible book value growth and return on tangible capital going up, you know, return on tangible capital going up, the best way to do that is to lever the shit out of the balance sheet and really put the company at risk. And tangible book value per share going up, the best way to do that is not to buy back shares when they're cheap because if they're over book value and you're buying back shares you're actually decreasing your book your tangible book value per share right so do you want to see what i'm saying where i could be a little bit worried about uh, right yeah that's, that's a good yeah there? that that that's a good that, that's a good point it is tangible book value per per share 
But that, that still goes down when you buy. Yeah, you're right. It's, yeah. It is it, it, when you buy a buff book. I guess it's 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 not as a it's not a, a creative, right? So that this is the old oh Facebook's tangible book is two dollars per share, and they're buying back shares at two hundred. They're destroying value. It's like no, it's, it's worth a lot more. Yeah. Right. I mean, the intrinsic values is really what what matters at the yeah. at the at the end of at the end of the day. Um, and I mean, the, what one one thing that I think is worth pointing out too is is that if you look back over, I mean, the last the last three years and kind of the the thresholds that they have for each of those of those metrics, they've they've been going up in in, in time. So it, it reflects where you know where where, where management thinks the, the the company can go and their kind of their their credibility. So I would I would think that at least makes me more more comfortable with with looking at those at those metrics. And Lyde, did you want to add anything there, or I have another question for you actually? Uh, just just very quickly, I'd say I think management was dealt a really bad hand when this company IPO'd. This was not a high quality company in 2014, 2015. And they've done a great job, all the things we've said, but you know, really chiefly building up the product portfolio, lowering the funding costs, building up the online bank. I mean, they've done they've management, I think, has proved a, a really good track record over the last, you know, five, six years. So so yes, I would prefer they own more, but I think the track record and, and the way they're compensated you know, are, are two strong positives. Let me ask my, my next question. And this is the reason I've historically passed on Ally, despite, uh, you know, some great write-ups. Uh, there, there was a, the science of fitting write-up that was very timely. It came out yesterday, which I thought was great. I know you, you wrote this up 30% ago in February before the stock had a big run, but you know, I, I will always remember a couple years ago, Somebody came out with a, a bank pitch and uh, somebody else, it, it might've been literally an egg on Twitter, but they said, of all the stocks in the world, your best pitch right now is a bank. Uh, and, and what they were saying, or at least what I interpreted them as saying was like, okay, yeah, you can make, you can make some money in a bank, but you know, it's not going to be, I know sleep loves Spotify. It's not going to be Spotify where people revalue it from, oh, they might win music streaming to, they have one music streaming there, Netflix 2.0 the EV goes from 50 billion to 300 billion in three years, right? Uh, With Ally Financial, we're talking about a stock at 1.2 book. Maybe it belongs at two book, but uh, there's tons of blow up risk. I think of Wells Fargo, five years ago, Wells Fargo is the gold standard. Buffett says it's the opportunity cost I evaluate everything else on. And today, Wells Fargo, I think is trading below book. I haven't looked in a while, but Wells Fargo's reputation is tarnished. And you you look back to the financial crisis, banks seem like they're just minting 20% ROEs forever, and then everything blows up. So I guess my pushback, and the reason I ask this of you, Enlightened, is because, you know, so I'm looking at your recent write-ups. There's Progressive, which very interesting company, insurance company, great underwriter, but it trades at four times book, and there's a lot of fintech coming in insurance. First Republic, incredible bank, but, you know, honestly, it could be Wells Fargo 2.0, right? Right now, everybody talks about the culture, but five years from now, maybe they were ripping off all their high net worth clients. So (laughs) I, I wanted to give that both overall and ally specific to you, you know, why is our best idea versus all the other things in the world we can invest in a bank trading at 1.2 times book value? That's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to ramble, but it it was the thing when we were going to talk about it, that was the thing in my mind as I researched this. Maybe, yeah, I have, I have some thoughts on on that and maybe you you can add after, but, and it's, it's definitely a, a really, a really good question. I think they're in a in a sweet spot where this used as as Enlightened just said this used to be a turnaround story for a really long time, and they've basically you know they're behind that. I, I don't think the market is giving them credit 
for that at this at this valuation. If you actually look at what, where this traded at, at the IPO, it was trading at 1.1, 1.2 times both. And you know they had all these headwinds going against them. The ROEs were probably at like seven or eight percent, and you know we're talking twice that on a on a normalized environment at this at this point. So the way that I think about it in the next you know kind of four to five to five years is is yeah you have a 1.1.1.2 times um, book value, uh, but it's not necessarily just going to be the the multiple expansion to me going forward. At the same time, the book value is is growing at a mid teens percent at this at this point, and uh, and you also have the, the the buybacks that have been that have been pretty uh, you know opportunistic over over time. So you know I'm I'm pretty comfortable underwriting um, you know kind of a a twenty percent twenty percent plus IRR on a four to five year basis, which it, I mean, when I look at at other opportunity sets in in out there and even in my portfolio, there's not that many that I, that I get to that to that level. Not so much today, but you know, in in at the height of the growth stuff in February or maybe even July, I think there would have been a lot of people said twenty percent IRR for a few years. Try a few days, and, <laughs> and today, you know, twenty percent yeah. IRR that is literally world beating returns. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but and, 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 and I have some confidence on that too because of what we what we explained, right? Like the, there's some good disability with with the asset side and the funding's cost coming down, etc. So, well, and like um, Sleek jumped in and stole your question, but I, I, I want to flip it over to you. Yeah. Sleek, you did a great job in just kidding, but I want to flip it over to you yeah. talking both about Ally and then maybe we can also just generalize because again, Progressive First Republic. I, it seems like you do like these stories with great companies <laughs> yeah. that I can do the same thing. You can kind of spreadsheet model them where book is 10 today. They're going to do 15% RE. But I'll flip it over to you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'd agree with sleep in terms of, you know, thinking about IRRs over time and, you know, getting similar number um, in terms, you know, in terms of expected IRRs, you know, you get the multiple expansion, but even without that, I think they'll continue to drive double digit EPS growth, book value per share growth, um, you know, driven by the higher net interest margin, you know, strong loan growth, strong growth and all these other products. So I think there's a number of levers there. Um, and, and then you get the multiple expansion on top of that. Usually I don't try to include a lot of multiple expansion in my underwriting, usually just kind of looking at EPS growth. But here's a story where I think, you know, sleep agrees that it's just undervalued relative to the, the quality of the company. So I think you're getting that double, double whammy there. Um, Perfect. Uh, do, do you want to talk about just generally for, you know, just the progressive First Republic, how you, how you think about those versus other opportunity costs? Sure. So actually, so First Republic, I actually don't currently think is that attractive. I also occasionally will write up companies on the blog that are really high quality companies that I want to track over time. And, you know, hopefully that the market will present a, a good opportunity. Um, but that's just one of those really, really high quality, you know, bank compounders that's um, generated a ton of value over time. Um, and I think their their play their playbook I think will continue for a long time. They have very small uh, you know market share in in the key markets that they're in. So, do you, First Republic. I'll just give a little anecdote. I used to be at a, a, a one of the big private equity shops, and when I was very low level, First Republic comes in and they they make an intro and they're like, "Hey, we want all of your business. We've got a strategic partnership with this." And you know now now all the compounders of First Republic, and I always think back to that. I was like, "Look, these guys." Not that I was guaranteed to be a success or something, but they went to every person in this analyst class and they knew, hey, get them while they're young. Like this is, and I hadn't seen, I haven't seen that at any other 
I haven't seen any other bank try that, you know, go to all the, you probably don't do Goldman because Goldman's got their own thing, but a McKinsey or the private equity, just go to them and say, yeah, right now we're not going to make a lot of money off you because you're a 25 year old kid and you've got nothing, but you know, you've got the, you've got the human capital invest with that. So I thought that was a really interesting thing. Uh, I've got a couple more questions, but I want to turn it over. I, I want to make sure because there's two of you. So I'm bouncing back and forth. Anything you think we should have touched on that we haven't touched on yet, or you wish we had touched on a little harder enlightened. I'll start with you and then we'll go to the sleep. Yeah. I guess the, the, the one thing I'd say about the current environment, the ally is benefiting in a few ways that, that, that we've talked about just in terms of, you know, higher used car prices, but they're also a uh, number of headwinds here. So one, if you look at new car volumes in the U S new car sales, they're actually not that high. They're pretty low right now. It's at about 13 million. Uh, November and pre-COVID, we we're at 16, 17 million. So we're well below where we were pre-COVID in terms of new car sales. So as that normalizes, um, you know, some of the inventory and sh- chip shortages, that'll be a benefit. And also, as we talked about, you know, their um, their lending to all these dealerships is way down because none of the dealers have any inventory. So they're actually this is not the peak environment for them by any means. So. The- that actually transitions in nicely into one of the tail risks I wanted to talk about. So I'll just bring it up here if that's okay with you. 13 million new car sales, that's on the low end for historical. And I, I agree with you, but you know, I think there's two things there. A, the rise of Uber, and at some point, maybe 100 years from now, I don't know, but self-driving cars, you know, I do think car ownership comes down over time. And that can also transition into a very tail risk where, you know, I, I had the guy, I had Eric from Worm Capital, head of research on, he was talking about Tesla. And I know, know one of the things they think is all of the Tesla and EVs are coming so quickly that all of the legacy auto stuff is going to be stranded very quickly. You know, not tomorrow, but it will happen. And if all of the legacy auto is kind of stranded, and I'm talking about combustible vehicles, you know, four years from now, EVs are so good that combustible vehicle prices are plummeting, they're going to zero, you know, that could present a risk. So I guess the two things, let's start with the first one. What if you said 13 million is on the low end? What if car ownership is actually trailing down because, you know, people can use cars a little bit longer because they're so much better now and people can Uber. So two car households become one car households. What if that's the case? I I think that's fair, but I think that plays out over a long period of time. And we were just at 17 million pre-COVID. So, you know, maybe we'd be at 16 now or whatever, but 13 is very low historically. And we were at 16, 17 for years pre-COVID. So I don't necessarily think we go from like 17 to 13 or 12 overnight, you know, absent COVID. I think that that takes time because, you know, pre-COVID, Uber was still very popular. Lyft was very popular. And, you know, we're putting up 17 million, you know, so... I think that takes time. And I think in terms of some of the other things, you know, allies moving more in towards used, the used car market. Um, and right now, EVs are only like 1% of the overall uh, car fleet. They're tiny, even because the, the the life of a car is 15 plus years now. So it just takes a long time for the fleet to turn over. So Ally can do great, you know, in the, in the used car market uh, for a long period of time. Sleep, yeah, did you want to add anything just to, to that? Yeah. yeah. Because I think it's very important to to make clear that that 13 million um, it's it, it it can be it can be very misleading because it's not a demand problem at all. It's and we all know this, right? Because there's a huge supply chain specifically to, to the to the chip shortages that we're seeing in in autos. But the demand of, of autos is is through the roof. If you go to to a dealer right now uh, and you try to buy a car, they'll tell you 
yeah, you can buy it, but you'll, you'll have to wait nine months. And that's why most people are going out and buying used cars. And that's why used car prices are up, I don't know, 50, 70% through the year. So the demand is certainly there. It's just that we haven't happened to have this um, kind of bottleneck at the, at the, at the moment. And, uh, and yeah, I agree with, with Enlighten that, you know, this is certainly something to, to keep track of, but uh, at least in my mind, it's kind of a five plus year thing uh, to when it actually kind of starts to, to play out. And we could see, you know, EVs and autonomous vehicles being a, a much bigger part of, of the total sales, but you're, you'll still, you'll still have a big fleet of, of existing cars that are going to be in the market. And even if the prices fall down, like Ally will be lending towards whoever wants to be buying that and still driving. Right. So. Hey, and, and tell me if I'm wrong here. This is one of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking about this, because I've got a lot more work to do on this, but I could see myself owning this one day. And one thing I was thinking was, well, they are a bank holding company, right? And they do have, they've got relationships with consumers. They've got a deposit base. Like this is not the ally of seven years ago, where if car lending went to zero, they'd, ha- they'd have no clue what to do. Cause that's literally all they exist. Like if car lending went to zero, yeah, they'd have a lot of capitals to deploy, but you're buying them for one times 1.1 times book value, which technically book value should be what, if you liquidated the whole company, you could pay out. So, you know, and book value should grow because they're going to earn now and they've got all these customer relationships. So they've got the deposits. They can go fund other loans and everything. If they, uh, am I thinking about that wrong? Or is that, I mean, that that's definitely like, that will be a a crazy scenario if, if all of a sudden people start, stop buying cars or for whatever reason, but, but then, yeah, like essentially what would happen is these, these loans would get rolled off and, and just, you know, get get paid down and, and turn into cash, and and they, you know, theoretically they can redeploy them into into some of these um, other uh, other products over over time. And that's the other thing they're diversifying away from this, right? Uh, Enlightened touched on this uh, uh, already, but um, as it as it stands as it stands today, uh, autos are, you know, autos, and that includes retail auto and, and commercial auto, etc., is is eighty percent plus of the of of their of their loan book, right? And you know, over over the next five years or so, that should probably be coming down to to seventy five or seventy. Um, so over time, they're they're diversifying away from from that, and and they're they've been pretty transparent in in the sense that they want to grow these other businesses to become a more diversified bank. It, it, and that's one start- of the reasons why I think it trades at, at where it trades as well. People look at their auto exposure and will be like, oh, I don't want to touch this, you know. It, it would suck if the autos went away because as we discussed earlier, they have an advantage lending to the dealers and everything in there. But again, it's not the end of the world because they'd still have the advantage in their deposit bank, deposit yeah. base, they could still find other stuff. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Oh, and sleep. I, I gave Enlighten the chance. I want to give you the chance. Anything else you think we should have talked about with Ally that we didn't talk about or we, you want to hit a little bit harder or anything? Yeah, no, I I remembered one of the one of the points you you put out in your in, in your thread related to kind of Tesla owning their own their their own supply chain and vertical integration and and the entire the entire process and I I thought that that was a very uh, that was a very interesting question. I think it's hey, let me just for the listeners the the point was you know, GM, they don't own their dealerships, right? It's independent right. dealerships. In many states, I believe it's actually illegal for a car dealer to uh, to try to, yeah, for a car company to try to operate a dealership. Uh, but Tesla has skirted those laws in those states. But Tesla, they, it's you go to a Tesla store, it's owned by Tesla. It's not an independent franchisee. So I was wondering, what if GM looks at the Tesla model, says that's way better than our model and eventually goes there? And sorry, just to give that background, please. Right. And, and, and this, I, I will say this is, in my mind, a very hypothetical scenario because 
I think we both know that the three of us know that the, these legacy auto OEMs are very slow in adapting and moving. And I think they're right now they've woken up to the fact of, of that EVs are, you know, are the new priority, et cetera. But I don't think they'd, they'd get into that any, anytime soon. And you're right that, that I think it's actually in, in all States that the, the franchise has to be separate from the, from, from the parent company. The reason why Tesla does it that way is because they have stores, but you can't buy a Tesla in a store. You have to buy it online. It's only a really a showroom. A showroom. Um, I so I don't, I don't think gonna, I don't think GM or Ford will be able to pull that off either way. I'm going to look it up out of curiosity, but I remember GM yeah. used to have their Saturn brand, and I think part of the pitch for the Saturn brand was GM owned like the Saturn locations, and there was not okay. a portion. Interesting. They argued they argued it's a low cost model, but nobody should quote me on that. I'll look it up, but that's an interesting thought. Uh, let's let's yeah. talk. Yeah. Uh, last thing, I want to talk Endgame. So I'll start with Sleep, and then I'm going to come to Enlighten with a, a slightly modified version of this. Sleep, you mentioned I can underwrite. 20% IRRs over the next couple of years. So could you just walk me out like your base case five years from now, you and I, we've got a couple of extra gray hairs on our heads. We're filming uh we're filming a, a follow-up to this podcast. What does ally look like in your in base the metaverse, case? right? <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah. So the you know, in my in my mind, so if we think about the 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 outlook that management has has given us in the in the medium term, it's uh, basically mid to high three percent net interest margin and uh, a fifteen to sixteen percent plus uh, ROE. The reason why they they have that plus is is because of this recent uh, credit card acquisition. But you know when I when I kind of run run those numbers and 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 see how how they are, that how realistic that that can be. Uh, I, I actually think it's it's pretty conservative in terms of how we can how we can see it play it out and and again just speaking to management track record they've laid out all these different outlooks going back in time and they've basically hit all of them go you know uh, because they came from a low ROE and uh, and over time they, they it just kept increasing as they uh, as they executed on their on their plan um, so yeah in my in my base case I have. Uh, you know, book value growing at at mid at mid teens and uh, and ROEs uh, stepping up uh, over time to 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 seventeen percent, and um, you know, I think by by then, um, you know, you can probably you don't even have to assume that much multiple expansion. Um, call it you know one five one seven. It's, it doesn't even have to be a, a like a two times book value uh, for you to to get to that uh, to, to that IRR, and that also assumes that they. They consistently buy back their shares at these at these very attractive prices. So obviously, you know things can change, and and this the, the share price can go up substantially, and and they wouldn't probably be as aggressive buying buying back that stock. But it's it's not you know that heavily dependent on that on that either. And if anything, that gives them some some extra cash uh, to pursue uh, other acquisitions or increase their 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 loan exposure, etc. Uh, we lost enlightened apparently. Maybe he got so excited talking about twenty percent IRRs, he's disconnected. So I'll, I'll give you enlightened's question, and he can add on. But the, yeah. my last question, you know, I look at Ally Financial. I look at a online only bank with lots of uh, car relationships and everything. And we talked about how they're doing bolt-on acquisitions. And I kind of wonder about the other way, right? Does a aspiring fintech player with a massive multiple come and buy these guys for the customer relationships and the deposit base, or you know, I? I know crypto is taking over the world, but if I was a crypto company with a big valuation, maybe I'm just too old school, but I'd look at this and say, oh, 
I could go buy a heck of a lot of customer relationships. That's yeah. a positive base. You know, a lot of crypto players are paying like 20% per day interest rates on some of their crypto stuff. I'm being a little hyperbolic, but that deposit base would look pretty attractive for funding. Now, I don't know how the regulators are going to like deposit banks funding crypto stuff, but, you know, do you think there could be some strategic interest, whether it's from a Wells Fargo trying to spruce up their image and their online product, or I don't know who else, but could there be strategic interest here? Yeah, I don't, I, I haven't, you know, given much thought to, to, to an M&A scenario here in terms of them being, being taken out. I think it's, it's a very valid and, and interesting question. I think for, for a large bank, it would be probably hard to, to pull off, you know, uh, especially like the, the, the top four or five that, 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 you know, the JP Morgans and Bank of America's and Wells of the, of, of the world, because they have such a big, you know, market. Oops. Hey, uh, Sleep, you got muted for a second there. I think when Enlightened joined, I pressed the wrong button. Sorry. Um, yeah. This is going to be the goofiest podcast, last <laughs> five minutes of podcast I've had yet. Oh, it's it's all good. So, yeah, so I was saying, I think for one of the large banks to, to pull it off, it, it would probably be a little bit hard just because Ally, I mean, it's it, it's up $185 plus billion in assets. So it, it wouldn't look good on the on, on the kind of Fed the regulatory that. front. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But the the fintech question is actually pretty interesting because if we look at some of the you know the underlying trends of, of some of these large fintech companies, uh, I think a lot of them will end up turning into into banks because at some point, and, and this is just a theory that I have, right? But I think we've we've seen seen some hints of, of this. I believe it's it's so SoFi was actually considering this or already did something like this turning into a bank holding company. But I, I could see a, a big you know valuation fintech uh kind of looking at some at an at an asset like this as a way to to kind of quickly turn into into a bank and have the the low cost the deposit base uh that would give them an, an additional advantage. So, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily um, say that's that's a zero probability of any. There's, there's probably some chances to that happening. We'll see. That was exactly what I was wondering. Enlighten just uh, managed to rejoin us. Enlighten, I'll just give you the the last kind of words here. We were talking about uh, both Endgame for Ally as a standalone, and Sleep was kind of walking us through the math there. And then I, I asked him, this was going to be your question, but if you disconnected, I asked him about possible strategic interest in Ally, whether, you know, he said legacy banks can't probably can't buy them for regulatory reasons, which makes sort of sense. Or I, I mentioned fintech players with huge multiples might just look at their customer relationships and deposit base and say, that is a really good strategic asset. So I'll let you just kind of jam on those for a couple of seconds. Sure, definitely. Yeah, I agree in terms of larger banks, you know, from a regulatory perspective, just not being able to buy Ally. You know, I can't, I can't see like a, a JP Morgan or Bank of America uh, being able to buy Ally. That just would not not fly from a regulatory perspective. And then from, a, you know, in terms of fintech, I think it is interesting, you know, uh, Sleep's comments there. I think um, Square uh, now, I think, has a banking license. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but um, I know some of the fintech players are you know, getting banking licenses or certainly are partnering with with banks for a variety of uh, financial services. So it's certainly a possibility, but I also don't necessarily think a fintech player wants to acquire, you know, $100 billion of auto loans, you know. It's good. Um, yeah, so. I, I, I haven't studied the buy now, pay later uh, people in death, but I, I could see a 
buy now, pay later guys saying, oh, these guys got deposits, which we can use to fund those buy now, pay later loans. Uh, we They've got those deposits. They've got huge customer relationships, which we can use to go push buy now, pay later products. And we've got a massive multiple, which we can use to take them out. But I, I do agree with you there. Uh, and I just want to, because you disconnect for a few minutes, any last thoughts here before we wrap this up? Um, no, I think we, I think we covered everything. Yeah. I mean, I think um, just, you know, overall in terms of the bull case, you know, continued strong EPS and tangible book value growth, multiple expansion here. And I think, you know, we, we've acknowledged some of the risks, but I don't really see them playing out in the next few years, three to five years. And the company continues to do a really good job diversifying its product portfolio, diversifying across, you know, both new and used car loans, as well as across different uh, OEMs. So, you know, I think that story continues to improve um, overall. So, yeah, we, you know, continue to like, like the company, like the story. Perfect. Well, hey, uh, I, I think we'll wrap it up here. But guys, you guys have been, both been on my wish list of people to get on the podcast. And I, I'm glad we could get you both on. We'll have to try and have you on individually at some point as well. Sleep, you know, you owe me a music podcast yeah, at some point. Cool. For sure. But Hey, uh, for the listeners, Sleepwell Capital, Enlightened Capital, two great blogs. They're going to be, I'm going to include links to them in the show notes. I'll include Enlightened's write-up on Ally. I believe Sleep has not done a write-up on Ally. So Enlightened's write-up on Ally will be there. And uh, The Science of Hitting, friend of the podcast, he just did a great write-up on Ally on Monday. I'll include a link to his write-up as well if you want to learn a little bit more about the company. But Sleep, Enlightened, thank you guys so much for coming on and looking forward to the next time. Thank you, Andrew. Definitely. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us.